Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, July 18th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and we have TruthVids here with us once again. And this is part 23 of our series, addressing Charles Weissman's What About the Seedline Doctrine? This is subtitled, Trees, Good and Evil. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Truthvids, welcome back. It's good to speak to you. Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me again. And yeah, um, you know, in these last, this last chapter, this is Weissman wrapping up everything in the book, coming to a close, trying to summarize it all and come up with a uh, conclusion to solidify that two seed line is false. And now I'm convinced that most people who read this book probably did not read it front to back all the way through. And they likely just honed in on a particular chapter that interested them, uh, say, Genesis or the serpent or Cain. And they just wanted to see what Weissman had to say on that particular verse or subject. So they probably didn't pick up the fact that he was constantly contradicting himself. You know, like on page five, he'd say this. And then 10 pages later, he's suddenly, you know, telling a different story like how he says that the serpent has an order contrary against God. And they, and then later on, he denies it all. Uh, and, you know, the readers won't pick up on that. Uh, and, you know, a lot of it is just our race. We, unfortunately, uh, we tend to be very lazy and not willing to fully investigate the book and read all the arguments. And that's why I think maybe this last chapter might actually be the most interesting and crucial part, because He's going to have to lay out all his arguments together, you know, all together, not 10 pages apart, and try not to contradict himself, which is uh, going to be tricky for him. And uh, he's going to bring up a ton of straw man arguments. And also, you know, suddenly this verse and that verse, like the wheat and the tares. And you've got to ask, why didn't he bring this up before? Why is it suddenly now important? When he should have brought that verse up, you know, in the middle of the book, even devote an entire chapter to that. So you have to ask yourself why he missed all these critical verses and suddenly they're coming. Um, it shows that he's a liar and a deceiver. And that's what you'd expect from him. Right, Bill? Well, well right. Absolutely. And, and you spoke about him contradicting himself in chapter four, I believe it was. He, he denied that the Kenites were the descendants of Cain, where here in this chapter, he admits that there are descendants of Cain who are at enmity with the, the, the sons of Noah and Abraham. So if those descendants of Cain survived the flood, then who are they if they're not the Cainites? <laughs> I, I mean, that's astounding to me that he made such a huge contradiction of himself in this chapter compared to what he had said in chapter four. It, it's astounding, but he did it. And he contradicts himself a few times in this chapter. And, and we will point that out as we go along. It's, it's incredible. Charles Weissman yeah. is a liar. He must be doing this purposely. I, I mean, I, I can't, we all have um, conflicts somewhere in our thinking 
which we may not detect or recognize and, and which might be difficult to correct when we do recognize it or when it is pointed out to us. Weissman had far too many conflicts in his thinking. Like you said, when you read the whole book front to back, there are far too many conflicts here for him to have been unconscious of it. He had to know what he was doing. He, he couldn't be so um, well-read and such a, I'm not going to call him a good writer, but such a decent writer, and at the same time be so stupid. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> he had to be doing this on purpose. Okay, let's get down to it. And, and, and you're also right about that parable of the wheat and the tares. The parable of the wheat and the tares, um, I pray that throughout the first 22 parts of the series that we have um, proven our two-seed line position without resorting to the parable of the wheat and the tares. I don't think I've explained it once so far in this series. However, the parable of the wheat and the tares seals it. it it's it's um, Well, we did explain it at the end of part 22, but not before that. The parable of the wheat and the tares seals it. it it's Joshua Christ is telling us exactly how to interpret Genesis chapter 3 and what he reveals later in Revelation chapter 12 with the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we haven't even had to go there, but Weissman totally avoided it, completely avoided it, except to mention tares. We had started to address the final portion of this chapter of Charles Weissman's book under the subtitle Elements of the Seedline Doctrine. That's where we are. And we had left off with a discussion of the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares provided by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 23. As Weissman had mentioned the tares in passing without any elaboration. Evidently, Weissman took for granted the acceptance of his notion that tares were only tares because they were followers of the devil, as he had argued on page 30 of his book, in other respects, on page 30 of his book, rather than being tares because they had actually been planted by the devil. Yet it must be the case that the actual origin of the tares is with the devil. Because, as the apostle had explained, Christ had come to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So, if these things were kept secret for that long, since that very time which the Genesis account describes, then that is when the events must have actually occurred. The planting of tares among the wheat must be speaking in reference to the events described in a parable in Genesis chapter 3 and the subsequent scattering throughout the Adamic world of the children of Cain, the Rephaim, who are Nephilim, fallen ones, and other groups which may be associated with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree must be a racial tree, 
and those people must be of the part of the devil who were scattered throughout the Adamic world, the tares being planted by the devil. Actually, it is a wonder to us that Weissman did not even mention the parable of the wheat and the tares until this very point in his book, where he only made a passing reference to tares. And he said the tares are apparently a satanic group of people. That's what he said right in his paragraph. But notice that he said group and not race. However, in that same paragraph, Weissman had already spoken of God's people and said that Jesus spoke of the tares or children of the wicked who were contrasted with the good seed. And then he calls them a group rather than a race. So he carefully chose his words. If their parents are vipers, and they are vipers, if they are children of the wicked, that means their parents are wicked. That means that they're a race of evil people. In both cases, in Matthew 13, 38, the word for children is huios, which is a son, and the word for seed is sperma, which is offspring. If the people of God are physical offspring of a particular individual, then the seed of the devil must also be the physical offspring of a particular individual. Weissman could not offer an exegesis of the parable because doing so, he would not have been able to conceal his blatant dishonesty. He wouldn't have been able to hide it. So he didn't treat the parable of the wheat and the tares at any length whatsoever. Earlier in that last paragraph, which we had presented from Weissman's book, Weissman claimed that the Canaanites, Edomites, and others were entirely wicked. And he said, as a race, these nations were satanic without any redeeming qualities. While Weissman refused to acknowledge precisely why those races were satanic, he nevertheless admitted that they were satanic races. Here, we have already presented the actual recorded history, as well as the New Testament scriptures, which explain how men from those satanic races had been in a position to have been the adversaries of Christ in the course of his ministry. In other words, we explain how these Edomites and Canaanites became Judeans through forced conversions in the second century BC, and they became circumcised, and as Flavius Josephus said, thereafter, they were nothing other than Jews or Judeans. They were going to the temple, they were circumcised, they were practicing the religion, they were taking part in, in the civic life of, of Jerusalem. They became full citizens along with the true Israelites. We've explained all this. Now, Weissman must have known elements of that history, yet he purposely chose to neglect them, claiming on page 32 of his book that the Jews, or more correctly, Judeans, that's his note, 
that Jesus was talking to in John 8 were true Israelites. But in fact, they were not true Israelites. As Christ had told them in John chapter 10, in another passage that Weissman had never once cited, another passage which Weissman totally ignores, but you believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So Weissman insisted that the Jews who opposed Christ were Israelites, and Christ himself informs us otherwise. How did Weissman miss those words in John chapter 10? Or if he saw them, why did he not address them? Why didn't he not consider those words in relation to the discourse in John chapter 8? Because if you read through the Gospel of John, where Christ said, as I said unto you, he must have been referring to his previous argument with his adversaries in John chapter 8. Again, it can only be that Weissman missed these words in John chapter 10 because he was being purposely dishonest, because he must have read this passage. He must have, at some point in his 30-year career as a Christian identity writer, he must have read John chapter 10. But now we shall continue where we left off with Weissman, in the middle of page 52 of his book. And he raises a topic from chapter 4 of the book, after having admitted that there were satanic races. And he says... So the question is not if satanic seed lines exist, but why they exist. It seems that all of these satanic seed lines that existed in scripture were due to the fact that one of their ancestors were cursed or rejected by God. First, the premise that the ungodly and their children are rejected only for their ungodliness in the sense of impiety, is wrong. That was Weissman's argument at the beginning of this chapter, or one of them. I think he actually made it a few times throughout the book. But the idea is wrong. All of the children of Israel went into captivity because they were ungodly. And they're still ungodly, but they're still promised mercy and redemption and reconciliation in Christ. Abraham himself had come from a line of pagans as the entire Adamic world had fallen into paganism, as we read in Joshua chapter 24 in verse 2. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith Yahweh God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood. Now that is a reference to the river Euphrates, and Abraham was from a point to the north, to the northeast of the river Euphrates. The town of Haran is far beyond the river Euphrates from the land of Canaan. That word flood could refer to a river in 16th century English. Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, 
and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. A little further on in that same chapter, we see the Israelites themselves had already fallen into paganism. And this is in the time of Joshua, barely a decade after their wandering in the desert. And Joshua exhorts them, and he says, Now therefore fear Yahweh, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, the other side of the Euphrates, and in Egypt, because the Israelites had also turned to paganism in Egypt, the golden calves and all that, and serve ye Yahweh. And if it seems evil unto you to serve Yahweh, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. The Israelites were in the land that they had recently taken from the Amorites at this time. But as for me and my house, this is Joshua speaking, we will serve Yahweh. The ancient Israelites, having turned to paganism once again from the time of Jeroboam I and well beyond the time that, and, and they maintained their paganism well beyond the time that they were all taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. Because they were impious, they were never considered unredeemable in spite of all the grievous sins that they committed. And the entire body of the prophets contains many promises that in spite of their sins, they will ultimately all be reconciled and be obedient to their God, although they had never been obedient to him in the past. The gospel and writings of the apostles are the announcement of that reconciliation. If people were to be rejected simply because they were ungodly or impious, all of Israel would have been rejected. All of Israel would be no different than the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Kenites, all these other people that Weissman is claiming are cursed forever and rejected forever because of their ungodliness. So because Israel is not rejected merely because of their ungodliness, there must be something more than mere impiety, which makes an entire race of people into permanent enemies of God, to the point where every last one of them, man, woman, and child, must be destroyed. There must be something more than mere impiety or ungodliness which makes a tear a tear. The ancient Israelites had worshipped devils and demons. They had sacrificed their own children to pagan idols. They committed fornication and adultery. They committed murder. They robbed and stole from their own people, from their own neighbors, even selling their own brethren into slavery. They did that for centuries. But even with all those sins being committed over many generations, 
they were still promised reconciliation. So long as they are sons and not bastards. That is the something more, which even Paul of Tarsus admits in Hebrews chapter 12 as the cause of ineligibility for redemption. Yet Weissman never explained what that something more is and never raised the prospect that something more is even necessary. If merely impious people were permanently estranged from God, we would not be here to discuss this, since there would not even be any people. <laughs> We'd all be dead if we were going to be destroyed just for mere impiety. I don't know if you have anything you might want to add to that. Yeah, I was going to say uh, the easy example is when Esau married the Canaanite women and obviously had, you know, race myth race mixed offspring and then jacob marries laban's daughters we see that rachel was a pagan she had pagan idols so she was a pagan but his descendants never got cursed and esau's did so it must have been a racial issue that was the problem that had uh, rebecca you know uh, or you know pulling her hair out over the issue absolutely absolutely and and not only was rachel a pagan when Jacob first came to her, and she was worshiping the same pagan idols because she was from the same family that, that Abraham's fathers were worshiping, as it's explained in Joshua. Not only was she a pagan when Jacob encountered her, but he purposely went there to these pagan people to choose a wife. He was purposely sent there by his father sent to a family of pagans to choose a wife. And he ended up with four wives as a result. And they continued to be pagans. Rachel had stolen her father's idols and brought them with her and hid them when her father came looking for them. And, and that's a, a considerable story in the book of Genesis. So they continued to be pagans. His wives did. And they acted like it. Yeah. And um, also, Weissman seems to acknowledge that a bloodline can be cursed because of, um, I don't know, something somebody does. But he won't acknowledge the race mixing possibility that if, you know, you mixed with a creation outside God, that that would curse your bloodline forever. He refuses to acknowledge that it must only be an action uh, the forefather did, but never the race issue again. Absolutely. And, and we won't get to it this evening, but in the last part of his book, because I really did expect to finish this this week, but it's going to take this week and at least one more. In the last part of his book, when we address it, he actually tries to claim that two seed liners seek the reason for sin as coming from outside of our race. And, and that's an oversimplified argument, which we will touch on here also. But that's why we like to think that Cain was of the devil. And that's why the Kenites were evil. But that's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. 
because Cain's children certainly did come from outside of the Adamic race. We're not ever told who's, who Cain's wife was, but Cain's wife couldn't have been an Adamic woman. Cain having been, having been separated from his family for having killed his brother. So it, it's what Weissman, that we don't have to believe that Cain came from the devil in order to understand the issue of seed line. We do believe that Cain was the literal child of the devil because that's what the scriptures tell us. And the scriptures tell us that in many places in plain language. So now, as Weissman continues, he contradicts even himself where he says, which brings us to Cain. Cain was cursed and rejected by God. Cain had a seed line. Cain's curse and rejection would come upon his descendants. It thus is only logical that Cain's seed line would be ungodly and that an enmity would exist between his seed line and God's chosen seed line through Seth, Noah, and Abraham. It seems to be generally accepted by Bible scholars that this situation existed. I was astounded when I read this. Saying that Cain's seed line would be at enmity with that of Noah and Abraham is an admission that Cain's seed line survived the flood of Noah and that it survived even to the time of Abraham. Yet where the Kenites are mentioned later in scripture, beginning in Genesis chapter 15, where Yahweh God was speaking to Abraham, throughout chapter 4 of his book, Weissman refused to accept the fact that the Kenites were the descendants of Cain. In fact, he tried to claim that the Kenites of Genesis chapter 15 and Numbers chapter 24 were only the inhabitants of a certain city, something which we had also proved to be wrong. Weissman's own words prove that he has been lying throughout this entire book. He adopts one position on something in one chapter and a completely different position on that same thing two chapters later. So now he continues with another half-hearted admission. And he says, so we see that many of the elements of the Cain satanic seedline doctrine do exist in scripture. The question or issue is not that a Cain satanic seedline existed, but to what extent they existed in the past and why their enmity and ungodliness existed. The enmity and satanic nature was due to God's curse and rejection of Cain because of Cain's act of murder. It was not due to Eve having sex with a supernatural satanic being. And this is Weissman's insistence, but he never proved it. Cain was actually rejected before he killed Abel, for which reason his countenance was fallen.
his sacrifice, which was the the fruit of his own hands, because that's what he did for a for a vocation. The first fruits of his own hands were rejected when he offered them to God. There was no um, sin at this time because there was no law, right? Paul of Tarsus explains that in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 5, that sin was not accounted because there was no law. So Cain and Abel were not making sin offerings. And, and this was um, argued by a lot of non-seed line identity Christian pastors. Oh, Cain's sacrifice was rejected because it had to be a sacrifice for sin, so it had to be a blood sacrifice. Well, that's not true. That's not true because there was no sin imputed. Men made mistakes, but sin was not imputed until the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, according to Paul of Tarsus. There's not one mention of a sin offering in Scripture until the giving of the law. So men made offerings to God for other reasons. And it's very clear that Cain and Abel were offering to God the fruits of their own labor. And Cain's sacrifice was rejected before he killed Abel. And Cain was told that if he did well, he'd be accepted. But if he failed, it's because sin lieth at the door. And that can only mean that it was under sinful circumstances that Cain had come into the world in the first place. And that's why he could not do well, because he was a bastard. And Cain went right out and killed his brother in the very next verse, proving the word of God to be true. That he could not do well because sin lied at the door. He was a bastard. That's why he was a follower of the devil, because he was a son of the devil. He didn't go sit in a devil school, <laughs> in a devil university, and learn from the devil. The devil, I, I mean, there's none of that mentioned in scripture. Where does it say that Cain ever came into personal contact with the serpent to be a follower of the serpent? Cain's attempt to sacrifice to Yahweh proves that he was not merely a follower of the devil. So Charles Weissman, his arguments fail consistently at every turn. His arguments fail. Cain was rejected before he killed Abel. But even with that, many murderers in Israel were granted, granted clemency and or given a punishment less than that which they were worthy of and even continued in their inheritance. David is the foremost example of these. David killed the man purposely so that he could have his wife. And that man was one of his mighty warriors and a fellow Israelite. That, what sin is worse than that? That's as bad as Cain's killing Abel. David was punished for it, but he wasn't given the punishment he was worthy of because the crime was worthy of death. Yet Yahweh had mercy on David. Cain's act of murder could not be punished according to the law because at that time, the law had not yet been received. 
So there was no law prohibiting murder, and the sin could not be imputed. Therefore, Cain was punished indirectly according to his sin, and his line would be preserved, although they would be fugitives and vagabonds. But why would Yahweh assure Cain that he would be preserved? While Cain himself feared being slain, why would Yahweh care to preserve a murderer? There is only one possible explanation, which is that Cain is indeed the seed of the serpent of Genesis 3.15, which Yahweh had to preserve, <coughs> excuse me, which Yahweh had to preserve so that his own prophecy of enmity between those two seeds would be fulfilled. There's no other reason why Yahweh would take special care to preserve a murderer, a man who killed his own brother. And it was um, our own fault, right? Our, our ancestors. Yahweh never made the mistake. He never made Cain. And, and, you know, Adam and Eve, they'd have to learn the consequences, as would, you know, all their descendants, our whole race. And it was all to teach us a lesson. Absolutely. And, and where Eve's punishment was pronounced, in sorrow shalt thou bear children. That doesn't refer to the pain of childbirth. Even though childbirth is a horrible travail, it doesn't refer to that. That's not what it pre refers to. Yahweh didn't um, narrow the bone structure of Eve's womb. And, and her hips and, and her pelvis as a result of her sin. That's not what he did. In sorrow, she bared children because she had children of two different kinds in her womb who would always be at enmity with each other and be killing each other. That's why it was said to Eve that in sorrow thou shalt bear children. She bore Cain, she bore Abel, and Cain killed Abel, and that caused Eve sorrow. That caused Eve sorrow. That's what caused her sorrow. And that's why Yahweh said that. In sorrow shalt thou bear children. And, and the punishment to Adam is also often taken too literally. And, and where Adam is told, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, and, and that the other punishments that he's given, that that's because this enmity between these two seeds is going to cause that. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and, and thorns and also thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Well, thorns and thistles are often used as allegories for people. And throughout scripture, the opposing seed line that the Canaanites and, and all the people opposed to the Adamic or the later Israelite race is described as thorns and thistles. <laughs> That's the real thorns and thistles that the ground would raise up are those people who would forever be giving the descendants of Adam um, grief and, and trouble. So those, those punishments which are pronounced on Adam and Eve 
that they have a much deeper meaning than the obvious meaning because they are too, they are also allegories. So immediately Eve's childbearing caused her grief and sorrow because one child killed the other. Yeah, and I'm sure when she bore, bore Seth, you know, she was in sorrow, sorrow and any other children, there'd always be that memory of what happened to Abel until she died. Well, well, right. And, and right. What's their fate going to be? And, and six generations later in the time of Noah, they're all race mixing it up. They're all race mixing with these same devils. Now under yet another subtitle, evil within or without, Weissman continues and he says, he's getting back into his psycho babble. An analysis of the human heart and mind reveals an interesting fact about how we tend to perceive, perceive things, such things as evil, corruption, enemies, or problems in our lives and in the world. We naturally want such things to come from without our personal domain, in other words, from outside, rather than from within it. It is unsettling to our nature and thus hard for us to accept that evil or harmful things should come from within ourselves, our family, our government, our nation, our race, or our God. It is much more appealing and thus easier to accept that such things come from outside ourselves, our family, our government, etc. And this is Weissman's own psychological reason for the existence of our two-seed-line doctrine. But we would assert that we do not need psychology because we clearly get our doctrine from the scriptures themselves. Neither do we reject the ability of men, even of ourselves, to sin. Rather, Weissman is only imagining that we do this. So his entire argument is based on false premises. He continues and he says, let's look at some illustrations of this psychological concept, which is basically Charles Weissman's fairy tale. And he lists um, reasons and, and they're numbered one through six. So it's going to take us a few pages to get through this. He starts by saying, his first reason, when a problem arises among two or more people, there is a natural tendency to blame the other person or persons for the problem rather than ourselves, even if our accusation is obviously false. And these are Weissman's words and not ours. We do not accept them as true. And they are certainly not universally true. There are some people who are sometimes selfish and blame others for their errors. But Christians must be, must be ready to admit their errors, as the scriptures exhort us to do. We do not blame our own failures on some imaginary enemy. Yet the consequence of our national sin throughout the Old Testament informs us that Yahweh God uses our enemies to chastise us for our sin. 
And as it is illustrated many times in the Old Testament, that phenomenon can also be identified in history today. It's also one of the promises in the curses for disobedience that we are also suffering from today. So in the Gospel of Luke, it is pronounced that Christ shall save us from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. It is our two-seed-line Christian identity endeavor, not only to point out our own sin, which we do all the time, but also to identify those enemies which are against us. If the enemy is not identified, the sin cannot be stopped. Since an acceptance of the eternal enemies of Christ is also a primary cause of the sins of our people. Right. And it's always, you know, as we've said so many times, it's always the Jews who introduce these sins into our society and try to corrupt the society. So it just becomes natural, you know, like, um, you know, drugs, gambling, pornography, etc. If they weren't there, those things would very likely not exist or be a minimal. Absolutely. It, it's like what comes first, the the pimp or the John, right? <laughs> Which comes first? What comes first, the the pornographer or the the, the panderer or or the consumer of pornography? Which comes first? In in ancient Palestine, the children of Israel were told to destroy all of the Canaanites. And that if they failed and accepted these Canaanites, that the Canaanites would make them to sin and would make them to commit idolatry. And that commission of idolatry in those Baal temples and the groves, right, and the high places, that also included acts of adultery and fornication because their religion was a sexual fertility cult. And that's evident in many places throughout Scripture. It's evident in Numbers chapter 24, where the children of Israel um, went after Baal, Baal Peor, and joined themselves not to the idols of Moab, but to the daughters of Moab. Because Baal worship was also... Um, it also included acts of fornication. That's when people first got married at the altars. So if they didn't destroy all the Canaanites, the Canaanites would have them often this idolatry and this fornication. So what comes first? The, the panderer or, or the consumer of, of pornography and, and smut and, and prostitution? And who are history's longest running panderers? if not the Jews, who are the descendants of those same Canaanites that lured the children of Israel off into bow worship. And they're doing it today all over the world. And it's been going on for three, three centuries now. Of course, it's been going on for 7,500 years. But for these last three centuries, the Christian bulwark 
against Judaism had had fallen, and and the Jews had their run of of Christendom, where they could promote every sort of immorality freely for three hundred years now. So we understand that our sin comes from within us. Weissman is building all his arguments on false premises. We understand that we sin, but we also understand that there are these satanic people in the world who constantly pander to us and constantly coax us into sinning. And, and that situation has been greatly magnified, especially these last hundred years. If the enemy is not identified, then the sin cannot be seized. Weissman continues with his spelunking, his cave exploration, attempting to send his readers down more psychological rabbit holes with item two on his list of reasons. When you tell someone of the evil or corruption and harmful things their own government is doing, they reject it and don't want to hear it. Now, that's certainly not true today. If you tell them lies and distortions about the corruption or evil acts done by some dictator or leader in a foreign country, they will accept it. And of course, these psychological reasons, right? This has nothing to do with 2C line. Yet, as we have already also shown, even the apostles of Christ had taught that there were intruders, false prophets and teachers who were privily introduced into the congregations of God to lead them astray. In other words, the governments of old were corrupted by outsiders who had somehow gotten their ways into the congregations and rose to positions of power and authority. But this is only an emotional argument that's based on vague generalities. And it's a straw man argument because it is not related to the issues here. So now Weissman, evidently because he sought to make a long list which had an authoritative appearance, now Weissman offers a, a, a similar argument and he says, a parent will accept lies about the unruly nature or wrongdoing of other children but will naturally reject the truth of such matters in regards to their own children. And again, this has nothing to do with our two-seed-line profession. It may sometimes be true, but it is unrelated to anything we say or teach about the scriptures. Now Weissman lists a fourth argument, which we have also addressed earlier in this book. Christians, he says, Christians have always had a difficult time accepting that their God causes evil, plagues, and troubles in their lives and nation, regardless of all the supporting evidence in Scripture. Thus, in their minds, they had to conjure up another God, a God of evil, who causes wicked people and tribulation in the world. They called this God Satan or the devil, and fear it as they should be fearing the true God. It is acceptable because evil now comes from without or from outside. Referring to the punishments which were going to come upon the children of Israel for their sin, it is clear in Scripture that the punishment was imposed by the will of God. 
So we do not reject that concept. But as we also explained when we addressed it earlier in these presentations, there are different types of evil. There is evil which is evil to men, but which accomplishes the will of God for the correction of men. That is the type of evil which comes from Yahweh. But then there is evil, which is rebellion against God and the transgression of the law. And for that evil, Yahweh God himself cannot be blamed. That is the evil which comes from men. Yahweh cannot be blamed, even if he saw it coming, and even if he announced in the words of his prophets that it would come. He cannot be blamed for it. Men must take responsibility for their own evil. Weissman refused to recognize this type of evil where he speaks of the evil which is from God. The evil from God is only evil in the eyes of men, and Weissman also failed to explain that. So why did he not make these distinctions? It's very clear in Scripture. There's an evil which comes from God, which is to correct or to punish or chastise men. But there's an evil which comes from man, which is in opposition to God. It's like a um, father disciplining his children. That, that at the time you hate it, but as they grow older and wiser, uh, they realize that it was for the good of them, or, you know, in this case, for the good of the race, for the good of all uh, Israelites. Exactly. When, when the Assyrians came into um, the land of Israel and started taking them all off into captivity and killing anyone who opposed, yeah, that was evil from the perspective of the Israelites. But they deserved it, and it was for their good and their correction from the perspective of God. And then, and then Yahweh God had made good out of the result of it by creating the Germanic nations of Europe from those people and turning Yeah, them. and all the nations around that stayed there, they all crumbled due to right. the race mixing going on. Exactly. And, and today it's just a puddle of mud. That was actually a prophecy in Jonah also, that the, um, the gourd that grew over Jonah and gave him shade withered in three days in a short time it withered in a short time so that gourd represented Assyria that they would take all of Israel into captivity but that that captivity actually sheltered Israel and once Israel escaped from the captivity by fleeing into the, the um wastelands of Central Europe and Asia, once Israel escaped from that captivity, at the same time, Assyria withered and shriveled, and it was destroyed, right? In part by the Israelites themselves. But Weissman absolutely refuses to see a distinction between the evil that comes from God, which is for the good of men, and the evil which comes from man, which is not for their good. And he never makes the distinction. 
He only tries to tell us that all evil comes from God. Well, when I commit adultery, I can't blame God for that. That didn't come from God. Even if God knew ahead of time that I was going to do it. And of course he did. So I still can't blame God for it. Because when I get to that point in, in time where I'm going to commit adultery, I consent and agree to it, which is why I go on to commit it. So it's my fault. It doesn't, I can't put the fault on Yahweh. I can't do it. Furthermore, we consider Satan to be a collective entity operating in this world in the form of a race or really races of people. Weissman's already admitted that those races exist, but he doesn't take it into the modern world, and he doesn't admit the origin of those races. We do not imagine that there is a devil in heaven, nor do we imagine that Satan or the devil is a god. There may have been some Christian identity pastors or teachers who have professed that, but it is not a Christian identity teaching. It's a Baptist teaching. It's not a Christian teaching. The truth is that many Protestant churches and even many Roman Catholics do think that Satan is a supernatural spirit being who causes all of the evil in the world, and none of them accept to seed line. Many of them are not even aware of our doctrine. They never even heard of it. So this, too, is a straw man argument on Weissman's part, as the argument is a fundamental issue, and it is not an argument or issue related to 2C line. If it was related to 2C line, only 2C line people would believe it. But in fact, most denominational Christians believe it, that is a spiritual devil that causes all the sin in the world. 2C line actually corrects that understanding. It seems that Weissman had introduced these other heresies into two seed line so that he could argue against them. But we do not profess any of these innovations. So he continues with his list of reasons, which are actually his own pot-boiled prevarications. And we've reached page 54 of his book, with his fifth reason. Many Americans today are concerned about aliens from outer space and how they are going to control or affect things in their nation. I guess he got that from Star Trek or something. But they have no concern for the aliens that are on this planet and already in America. The alien problem is within, not without. And, and this is a ridiculous slander to include something like this and impress upon the reader that it is one of the reasons for our two-seed line profession. However, on the other hand, right, if one thinks that Wesley Swift is the sole representative of two-seed line doctrine, then perhaps Weissman is not entirely wrong to present this, as Swift was caught up in all sorts of science fiction delusions. However, other teachers of two seed line did not follow that path, and men such as Bertrand Compare never mentioned space aliens and exhibited two seed line 
exclusively from the scriptures. In truth, we understand that all of the aliens among us are the collective seed of the serpent, as they were not created by God. Where does it say that Chinamen were created by God? Nowhere. Indians, Black Africans, Eskimos. Where does it say they were created by God? It only says that Adam was created by God. Animals and Adam. But that there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden when Adam was created. We understand that all of the aliens among us are the collective seed of the serpent as they can all be traced backwards or forwards. And when I say forwards, it's because we don't really know the details of their origin, but we do know what their destiny is. So they can be traced backwards or forwards to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, having their destiny in the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And if that's their destiny, that must be their origin. If they were created by God, then they would be called good and they would be preserved. But only the Adamic race was created by God. Only the Adamic race was called good. These other races are corruptions of God's creation, perpetrated from the fall of the angels who left their first estate. Yet we do not even believe that that fall had to come from outer space. So we do not have to believe in UFOs and space aliens. In fact, we never teach that. We are only concerned with these aliens among us as they are the enemies from whom Christ had promised to deliver us, and the Jews are preeminent among them. Weissman cannot, because Weissman denies to seed line, he cannot properly explain this. But here he's pretending as if he can. And all he, these arguments, you could just apply them to anything you know, to argue against any argument. There's nothing specific here about two seed line. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could employ these arguments against Weissman because Weissman doesn't really tell us the origin or the destiny of these aliens. So he's trying to use an argument that belongs to us and he's trying to use it to twist it so he could use it against us. But he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe his own argument because he cannot explain the origin or destiny of the Jews or the other races. He thinks the Jews are Israelites. Next, Weissman repeats an argument he already presented here, another argument he already presented here, but in different terms. He says, man tends to look at evil and sin as problems being without. Well, he already presented that. While denying or ignoring that which is within himself or his own carnal nature. As Christ said, that whatsoever thing from without enters into a man, it cannot defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man, Proceed evil thought, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, 
covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness. All these things come from within and defile the man. And he's citing Mark chapter 7. And with this, we almost agree. As a Christian confesses his sin and confronts it, renouncing it rather than giving it an occasion to destroy him or those around him. That's what Paul of Tarsus taught in Romans chapters 6 and 7. As we explained earlier in this series, Paul of Tarsus wrote at length of the two natures of the Adamic man, the carnal, which may lead him to sin, and the spiritual, by which man has the ability to overcome the carnal. And that's the entire theme of Paul's chapters, Romans 6 and 7. And that's a, a challenge we all face every day, right? Yes, we all face it every day. But the other type of evil are the, the, the children of the devil who are planted among us. And those children of the devil either torment us when we act righteously and they persecute us for upholding God's law. And, and this is a theme in the first epistle of Peter, as well as in the wisdom of Solomon and in many of the Psalms. So this theme is repeated throughout the scriptures. This theme is also an underlying theme to the entire prophecy of Jeremiah, as Jeremiah was constantly being attacked by the mixed races in Jerusalem in his time, and they wanted to kill him. So this has nothing to do with the fact that there are also evil races in the world, carnal men having not the spirit as the Apostle Jude had explained, Jude verse 19, who are satanic and who therefore cannot please or do the will of God. Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 6, for a corrupt tree brings not forth, I'm sorry, for a good tree brings not forth corrupt fruit. Neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. A corrupt tree, which cannot produce good fruit, is a corrupt race of people that can never please God. A good tree cannot produce corrupt fruit because the children of God are inherently good and they are forgiven even if they sin, as the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 2. They are forgiven even if they sin. It is the bastard which shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh and not the mere sinner who is offered mercy in Christ. Weissman pulls everything in the Bible out of context because he won't admit that. Now Weissman offers yet another lie. Note that Christ never blamed the devil or Satan for the evil and corruption in the world. He is telling us to look within ourselves for evil and sin. But in that same passage from Luke chapter 6, Christ is clearly speaking of trees as races of men, where he says, For every tree is known 
by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. <coughs> in um in Matthew chapter twelve in verse thirty four, which we discussed at length earlier in this in, in this presentation, this series of presentations, Christ said to his adversaries, Oh, generation of vipers. Now that word generation is genema, and it means produce or offspring. The fruits of the earth, the produce of agriculture, genema. That's the strongest definition. Definition That which has been born or begotten, the offspring or progeny of men or animals, the fruits of the earth, the produce of agriculture. O generation, or O offspring of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So therefore, Christ attributes wicked deeds to a wicked race, because he is not only calling his adversaries vipers, He's calling their parents vipers, which means that he's referring to a race. That fully indicates that he's referring to a race. And that is how this should also be understood, because it's similar allegories. It's allegories with the same meanings using different terms. Christ is not speaking of ideas or doctrines here, as thorns, bramble, figs, or grapes. Rather, relating men to different types of trees, and informing us that bad trees cannot produce good fruit, we see that these trees certainly do represent races of men, but this is not fully apparent until the composition of first century Judea is understood, as it consisted of both Israelites and, in rather large numbers, Edomites. In the beginning, when Adam was created, there was a tree of life, and there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the Gospel of Christ, it is revealed in more than one way that the tree of life is God and his people. As Christ told his apostles, I am the vine, ye are the branches. And as we see in the description of the city of God in Revelation chapter 22, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The twelve fruits represent the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, 
whose names are written on the gates of that city. Therefore, in the parables of Christ, the good tree, the wheat, the good seed, the good fruit, they are his people. And he planted them just as the only race which God took credit for creating in Genesis is the Adamic race. In Genesis chapter 10, in the Table of Nations, it is historically verifiable. It is historically demonstrable that they were all white. But from where are the bad trees which cannot produce good fruit? In Genesis, everything which Yahweh God had created, he proclaimed to be good. So ostensibly, God created nothing bad. However, there are clearly races here which Yahweh God did not plant. The sin of Judah goes back to the very time of Judah himself. So it is said in Malachi that Judah married the daughter of a strange god. And the Shalahites in Judah were from his Canaanite wife. Later, they were discounted from the inheritance of Judah as the sons of Pharez, whom Judah had with Tamar, had inherited the scepter. Shalah was never considered for that. When the prophets, when the prophets Jeremiah in chapter 2 and Ezekiel in chapter 16 of his book gave reason for the sins of Judah in the period of the Old Kingdom, they were attributed to race mixing with the Canaanites. And the prophet Malachi used Judah himself as an example that it was happening again in his own time as the priests were polluting the covenant of Levi. In Jeremiah, Yahweh had lamented, yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? And the answer was a description of race mixing in Judah, the taking to themselves broken cisterns that could hold no water, the sin that couldn't be washed off their skin, no matter how much soap they used. They're all allegories for race mixing. Later, the Judah of Malachi's warning became the Judea of the time of Christ that the covenant of Levi was corrupted and Judah married itself once again to the Edomites. So Christ declared that every plant which my heavenly father has not planted shall be rooted up. Christ certainly did understand the reason for the apostasy in Judea as originating with the bastards and, and I shouldn't even say understand, he explained it because that's how we understand it. Christ certainly did explain the reason for the apostasy in Judea as originating with the bastards that had infiltrated and usurped the kingdom. And therefore, the apostles Jude and Peter described it in that same manner. They talked about spots 
in our feasts of charity. They talked about infiltrators who were condemned from of old. They talked about these infiltrators. They described them as being evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. But they weren't made by God. God didn't create evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. You don't see that in Genesis. So Christ certainly did explain these things. Weissman refused to acknowledge the explanations. Now Weissman gets near the source of our modern-day problems, which are caused by the same phenomena that plagued the ancient kingdom. But he never quite goes all the way to find the appropriate conclusion. I don't know if you have anything to say before I proceed. Well, yeah, I was just going to say we're in the exact same predicament as um, back then, right? I mean, kind of similar to, you know, Jeremiah's time, but also especially Christ's time where they're just running everything uh, and, you know, we, we kind of feel trapped and it's astonishing Wiseman won't acknowledge that. This is why John the Baptist was baptizing people in a river on a Sabbath day because people weren't going to the synagogues any longer. So John went out to the wilderness and, and started preaching to attract the people to himself. It's, um, it's evident in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel was actually a prophet of the captivity. He was one of the people taken into Assyrian captivity early on. And that's completely evident in chapter 1 of Ezekiel because he is found worshiping by a river. And the river that he was worshiping by was actually, the river Kabar, was actually one of the places to which the Assyrians had brought captives from, from Israel. <clears throat> it was north of Babylonia the river Kabar. Ezekiel was not a prophet. He was not a man of the Babylonian captivity, but he was able to keep track of what was going on in the kingdom of Judah. I mean, these people were still in contact. They, they still had contact with one another. And Ezekiel is actually writing as the Assyrian empire is falling apart. So, Ezekiel chapter 1, now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month of the day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar. And that reference to the 30th year is probably a reference to how long it had been since Ezekiel was taken captive. And he's by a river. He's among the captives by the river. Because that's where the Israelites gathered to worship when they didn't have a synagogue. And we see that again as Paul goes to Philippi in the book of Acts. That Philippi did not have a Judean assembly hall or synagogue. So Paul had encountered a group of women who were praying by the river. Because that's where they gathered. And that's why Paul had gone down to the river on the Sabbath day. So that was typical. So 
it's obvious that there were synagogues all throughout first century Judea, and Christ often preached in them. But John the Baptist was able to collect followers and perform his baptisms and preach to people by the rivers because there were evidently many disaffected people in Judea who were not going to the synagogues any longer because of the evil in the nation. And Flavius Josephus had described how the Sadducees and Pharisees, and I say Sadducees first because the high priests were all Sadducees at the time, were actually robbing the Levites and using their power and authority as an organized criminal operation. They were robbing the tithes from the Levites in Judah, in, in, in and around Judea, in, in Jerusalem. So how could they operate their, their, their assembly halls? How could they operate their synagogues? They were being oppressed by the priests. So what Weissman is saying here is absolutely what we believe is happening today in our lands, in every Christian country, as you explain. And, and it's also what happened in first century Judea and in the old kingdom of Judah, but Weissman won't acknowledge that the same culprits are behind it all because he won't recognize their identity in, in the New Testament. He refuses to. So we continue where Weissman says that the closer we look within ourselves, our race, our government, etc., the closer we will get to the real source of the problems and evils that affect us. Weissman's thinking this is all evil white men, right? But this is unpleasing to our sensibility and offends our ego and pride. Thus, we want the evil and problems which touch our lives to come from without, from outside of our government and our race, and will accept lies and falsehoods which say it is so. The farther away the source of the evil and problems is, the more acceptable it is to our nature. Now, this is also an emotional appeal and a straw man argument. We do not sit and blame all of our problems on faraway Jews or a devil in outer space. And, and that's ridiculous. It's absurd. But the closer we look at our race and our government, we see traitors who have sold themselves as whores to commerce and join themselves to the beast, which is exactly what the word of God says in reference to the children of Israel in Revelation chapters 17 and 18. And we see Jews everywhere in political offices, in government agencies, and in control of international banks and corporations. As we are also told in Revelation chapter 13, that it is the dragon which gives its power to the beast. And we are warned in Revelation chapter 17 that the children of Israel would turn over their kingdom to the beast. So the dragon is in control. 
all of this is easily explained once it is realized that the Jews themselves are the dragon, that the system of global governance, trade, or commerce, and so-called brotherhood of man is the beast. However, Weissman ignores most of the New Testament, even though these things are also attested in the Old Testament. And um, it's so obvious, isn't it? Like every CEO of every corporation, it's a Jew. Uh, every politician, you know, the vast majority, especially the ones up top, is a Jew. Um, all the bankers, um, all the, you know, high lawyers and doctors, whatever um, position they've made, you know, administration somewhere, it's all run by them everywhere, every country. I think um, four, at least four of our Supreme Court justices here are openly admitted Jews. <laughs> and three of them are Jesuits, Roman Catholic Jesuits. And one of them's a Negro. <laughs> is that representative of the population of the country, even as it is today? It's not even close. Jews are way overrepresented, and, and Roman Catholics. Where are the white Protestants? The same thing with Congress. I, I, I don't know, I don't remember the numbers. A few years ago, I, I think it was 15% of our Congress was Jewish, while the Jews continue to claim that they're 3% of the population. How is that? How many senators are Jewish? 20%? Probably 20% of the Senate is Jewish, and the Jews claim to be 3% of the population? Perhaps I'm overcounting Jews? I bet it's close. There's an incredible number of Jews in Congress, openly practicing admitted Jews, rather than converts or atheist Jews who may not claim to be Jews or, or who could get away with claiming not to be Jews. I don't know. The banks are um, the international banks, the large international banks and corporations, Jews are heavily overrepresented among the owners, principal shareholders, um, directors, CEOs, presidents, whatever, all, all of the top positions. The media is, is almost wholly controlled by Jews. All the producers, all, all the movie producers, all the um, television news producers, all, all of the important people behind the scenes, while you have a blonde bimbo actually just reading from a monitor. So it looks white, and it's not. <laughs> Usually a blonde bimbo with a, with a Negro sitting next to her, right? That's the trend. So they could constantly push that image down our throats. Yes, and, and Weissman entirely ignores this aspect of, of history and of modern reality. But even if he wrote this book, I don't remember when exactly he wrote this book. It may have been in the 1970s, 1980s. But even then, 
this was perfectly evident that this aspect of society was not hidden. It was right in everybody's faces, and it still is. We near the end of page 54, and Weissman is starting to move towards a conclusion. But we still have a ways to go, so he says, Now let us look at the Jewish problem. Most everyone can recognize that there is a spirit of ungodliness and anti-Christianity with the people known as Jews. Throughout all of history, we have examples of Jewish hostility towards white Christians and the harmful effects Jews have had on the European nations. They have clearly been as aliens in our midst, destroying our way of life. So Weissman can see this, but he cannot make the next logical conclusion that the Jewish proclivity for such treachery must be genetic. Why can't he make that conclusion? If the Jews have never produced good fruit, then how are they not the evil tree? How is that? If the Jews have never produced good fruit, they must be that evil tree that Christ spoke of that can't produce good fruit. If Jews have acted in the same pattern for 2,000 years, and if they still act that way today, and if they are absolutely unlikely to ever change, how are they not a bad tree which cannot produce good fruit? And if Weissman would, as if, if, as Weissman would acknowledge elsewhere, the nations of Christian Europe are the descendants of Old Testament Israel, yet the Jews are forever opposed to them. How is this not a product of the same entity described in Genesis 3.15? And even Weissman admitted that entity, that, that enmity, uh, I'm sorry, he admitted that that enmity with Cain at the beginning of this, of this presentation, we were quoting from a paragraph on, I think it was page 51 of his book. Weissman had admitted that there would be enmity between Cain and the descendants of Seth, Noah, and Abraham. But he won't say that it's because Cain is the actual seed of the serpent. He, he's so full of contradictions. Yeah. It, it's incredible. And it's astonishing that there's never been a single good Jew in 2,000 years, right? I, I mean, every now and then you might get one who, who lashes out. He, he gets done over by his own people and he's upset. And they may say, reveal something, but they'll never acknowledge um, that we're the Israelites and that they're fake Israelites. They'll never go that far. Uh, you know, they'll only reveal something that they find disgusting or, you know, like that, that chess player, Bobby Fischer, for example. But he never went far to reveal all the truth. They always hold back a little bit. Well, well right. They never get to the core matter that the, that the Jews simply are not God's chosen people. Now, Weissman moves even closer to the root of the problem without ever reaching it. And he says, and now we're on page 55 
of his book. Israel of old also suffered much from captivities and alien control over their life, liberty, and property. But Israel's problem was never the Canaanites, Philistines, or Assyrians. It was within their nation, their race, and their own hearts and minds. The same is true regarding the Jew. To interrupt Weissman mid-paragraph, the Philistines and the Assyrians were notable and powerful nearby nations, whom Yahweh God had used to chastise the children of Israel when they were disobedient. But that alone does not make either Philistines or Assyrians evil. And Christ himself had said that the Assyrians, in reference to the men of Nineveh, would be in the resurrection. So the Adamic Philistine shall also be there. But the Canaanite is another story. Among several similar warnings concerning the Canaanites, we see in Joshua chapter 23, know for a certainty that Yahweh your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you because they failed to kill them all as they were told. But they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. Now, how did Weissman miss that in Scripture? For the same reason, we see the Canaanites were indeed snares and traps to the children of Israel, as the sins of Israel are described 800 years later in the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But the Canaanites and the related Edomites had never perished from the land, and instead they flourished in it as Israel and Judah were taken into captivity. Later, after the return of some of Judah with Zerubbabel and the eventual rise of Jerusalem in the 2nd century BC, those Canaanites and Edomites were all converted to Judaism, and the result is the Jews of today. Christ told them plainly who they were, and so did his apostles. But Weissman refused to see it. He says their ungodliness and cursed ways would not have any effect on us if we did not have problems within ourselves, such as believing they are God's chosen people or that all people are equal. Now, earlier, Weissman had said that the Jews were all Israelites, and here he's denying it because they, he's in, inferring that they're not God's chosen people. So he's contradicting himself again. And he says the Jews are a problem just like the fox is a problem. If we are so foolish to ignore the innate characteristics foxes have exhibited throughout the centuries and believe the humanistic tripe that they are equal with all the other farm animals and thus allow them equal access to the farmyard, then we have no one to blame but ourselves for the loss of chickens from the chicken coop. Now, now this is incredible to me because earlier Weissman said that all the Jews were Israelites. All the Jews in Judea at the time of Christ were Israelites. But now he's saying that they've been a problem for like this for 2,000 years. So which is it? Why does he want it both ways? Why? I, I, I'm hoping you could explain this because I can't. 
<laughs> Except that he's a he's damn trying liar. He's um, kind of CI, but then disproves CI. Yeah. You know, you can't be both. He clearly wants it both ways. The Jews are Israelites or they're not. Yeah. That they're either sheep or they're foxes. And here he's saying that they're act, they've always acted like this for 2,000 years. But here he's saying they're not God's chosen people. And that they are different from us. Yeah, and, and as for the foxes, you know, the foxes have a place in, you know, Yahweh's natural order. They they keep the uh, rodent population down or rabbits. You know, and, and every country has some kind of predator that does that. That's their purpose. You know, you have... If um, a dead body's on the road, within a day, there'll be maggots and flies that will devour it. And then spiders or, you know, uh, other insects will devour them. And then birds will and will take them. And then birds of prey will take them. And foxes, they have a purpose, but Jews do not have a purpose. <laughs> right. That's sort of, that. that's true. That is true. Um yeah, you know, Weissman is correct about the sins of the Christian children of Israel. But he does not recognize or does not concede that it is Jews and converso Jews that have taught egalitarianism and humanism to the world as they destroyed the medieval world in a series of European revolutions. And they are the enforcers of those satanic creeds to this very day. As it says in the Revelation, in chapter 20, and when a thousand years are expired, the thousand years that Europe was a strictly Christian continent that functioned under Christian law, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, which is the emancipation of the Jews, which happened in the, from the time of Napoleon and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, which is what we are suffering right now. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them which is the point that we look forward to, hopefully in the near future, but it's going to happen. All the nations have been gathered against the camp of the saints in the name of humanism and egalitarianism. And the Jews have fulfilled the role of Satan by organizing it all. In the post-apostolic period, it was Jews who went to Antioch and Alexandria to teach Christians replacement theology a false theology which inevitably led to Christian universalism. And in the medieval church, it was Jews who promoted medieval universalism. Therefore, they have always held the claim of being God's chosen people, even when most Christians still believed that they were accursed. From the second century, the Jews were claiming that they were exclusively God's chosen people and that we were only Gentiles saved by grace. This replacement theology dates to the time of Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr was a Samaritan who got his Christianity from the Jews of Jerusalem, 
So even Weissman admits that Jews are playing the role of the devil while he denies that they themselves are devils. He's admitting much of our two seed line doctrine is true, but he's denying the components of it that prove or, or that demonstrate that this is a solely racial problem. That while our race sins, their race and the other races are entirely evil. Their innate character is evil. They can't do good because they are all bad trees. When we return in his next paragraph, Weissman attempts once again to cover for the Jews. And we will pick up at that point when we return to finish this address of his book. In, in, at least I believe that our next installment in his presentation will indeed be the last, even though I thought that this one would be the last. <laughs> yep, one last part. But, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's just astonishing that everything, it always originates from them. And, you know, it it's always has a purpose. It's never random, you know, like humanism and the replacement theology. It's all bit by bit that there's always a plan behind it to gradually uh, let them be accepted into our society. And then gradually, you know, the non-whites and then gradually they can break down the race barrier and get us to mix with them. It's all planned out bit by bit, and there's, you know, it's all so evil, and it always originates from them. Absolutely. They even brought the slaves, they, they brought the greater number of the slaves over here. They were responsible for bringing the black slaves to America in large degree. I mean, white men were in on it too and were also making a profit from it. But they Jews were also the majority of the plantation owners who, who had actually wanted slavery and, and wanted to employ black slaves rather than white laborers. And, and that was putting white men down south out of work for 200 years. But the Civil War was not about the so-called Civil War, because it wasn't even a Civil War. That was not about slavery. Yeah, and there were many people back then who wanted to uh, ship them all back, right? Um, you know, you know Abraham Lincoln. Whatever you think of him, even he wanted to get rid of them. But you know that that idea went down the drain. Well, well, Liberia was created by those um, American leaders of the 19th century who had intended on repatriating all of the African slaves back to Africa. So they created Liberia. I, I think they may have purchased the land from African chieftains. They created Liberia. They gave Liberia a, a constitution like ours and a government like ours. And they repatriated, I don't know, maybe tens of thousands of former black slaves back to Liberia or freed blacks back to Liberia. And look at what they did with it. They can't maintain a society. They destroyed it. <laughs> but Liberia is that experiment. Yeah, the serpent always eats its own tail, right? <laughs> right. And, and uh, I mean, it's a shame they didn't repatriate every black back to Liberia. Because they hit, they'd all be gone now. I'm sure. They cannot survive on their own.
in, in any significant numbers. They devour each other. We see that in our There'd cities. There'd just be a hole in Africa. We see that in our cities every day. In, in, um, I, didn't, I haven't looked at the statistics recently, but the last weekend in June, over 100 people were shot in Chicago, most of them blacks by blacks, and 14 of them died. And I think four or five of those 14 were young black children. And then over the 4th of July weekend, there were over 100 shootings again in Chicago, most of it black on black. And I think 17 or 18 people died, people, if I have to call them people. And several of them were young children. So they devour each other. Their violence destroys themselves, which we should be grateful for. But the, 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 um, the hypocrisy is in the fact that we don't see any Black Lives Matter demonstrations in Chicago. The Black Lives Matter people don't care about the blacks that are destroying themselves in Chicago. Why aren't they there? I mean, this... Well, really, it's just a hatred for whites under the guise of uh, Black Lives Matter. Exactly. That's all it is. And Black Lives Matter is funded by Jews, and, and it's really being run by Jews. There is a, um, a Jewish, a, a, a Jewess named um, Susan Rosenberg. And if you go search for Susan Rosenberg on the internet and go to her article, there's an entire article on her at Wikipedia, which admits that she was a leftist revolutionary in the 1970s and 80s. <clears throat> and she was a terrorist, basically, who sought to openly overthrow the U.S. government through armed struggle and the use of violence. She was part of the Black Liberation Army of that time, and she, she supported it. She raised money for it. So she was a fugitive for a while, and she was arrested in the mid-'80s, and she was put in prison for 58 years. She only spent 16 years in prison. And Bill Clinton commuted her sentence to time served. On his last day in office, Bill Clinton left this left-wing terrorist. He let her off the hook. So what does she do? Well, today, she's funding Black Lives Matter. She works for a, a, an umbrella organization that's a nonprofit foundation. And its primary purpose is to fundraise and do administrative work for Black Lives Matter. So this leftist terrorist that had 58 years in prison for funding a Black revolutionary group in the 70s and 80s and for stealing money to fund them, 
in, in armed armored truck robberies and bombings and stuff. She funded the Black Liberation Army. Now, 30 years later, she's funding and coordinating and administrating Black Lives Matter. I, how, how are the American people not marching with, with M16s on, on, on Washington? And it shows you why the Jews are always the real problem, the danger, because they're always the generals militarizing, you know, all these mud people against us. Well, this Susan Rosenberg, it, it is so obvious. It, it's incredible. But then when you read Snopes, you get a different version. You, you get a cleaned up version of the same story. They have to admit it, but it's cleaned up. They don't mention the Black Liberation Army. <laughs> they don't mention the plot to overthrow the government with violence. So that then they that then they say that terrorism isn't um, doesn't have a universally agreed on definition. So she's not a terrorist. Get the hell out of here. This Jew bitch has been a terrorist all her life, and, and she's definitely Satan using Negroes to destroy whites and white society. There's no doubt. And she has a pattern of it, and they allow her to get away with doing it, as if Black Lives Matter doesn't have the same objectives as the Black Liberation Army. But they're calling for defund the police. Defund the, I hope they defund the police. I hope they defend the police because then it's on. They're all going to die. Well, they're all going to die anyway as soon as the hand of our God decides to move. With, with Weissman's... Well, without our two-seed line perception of Scripture, all these things would make no sense. But they make perfect sense. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I cut you off. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, we look forward to that day, right? When when it's on. When, yes, when we Yahweh, do. You know, puts the dividing line down and says, right, let's do it then. Yes, we do. I guess all these, um, that they could convince all these dumb Negroes that if we defund the police, that whites are going to sit with their, sit on their hands and, and let them get away with all the crime they want to, just like we've been forced to do with the police, but that's not how it's going to pan out. Not at all. Well, okay. Well, yeah, whenever a white defends himself, who gets arrested, right? Who, who did the police go after? Yeah, right. Exactly. So it's on once the police have defended, but I, I don't see that as a realistic objective. I don't think that's ever going to happen, to be honest. Even if the, it, it might happen in certain cities that are almost entirely under the control of leftist politicians. And, and that's true in Minneapolis, and it's true in Seattle and Portland and, and other Pacific Northwest towns and cities. It's true in places in New York and California. So let the liberals... Let the liberals eat the fruits of, of their own profession. That's fine with me. 
Okay, Truthvids, thank you for being here, and, and we'll see you and wrap up this series of, of presentations addressing Charles Weissman next week, I pray. Yeah, great. I look forward to it. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of Black Lives Matters. Cheers, Bill. Cheers. Praise Yahweh.